0: Well, good morning. Oh, there they are. I was looking for those lights. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Great to see you with us today, those who are joining us on site and those who are joining us online as well. Well, last week we took a little break from our sermon series on Moses because we had the GEM event taking place, the, the Greater Edmonton Missions Conference that happens each year. And we had the wonderful privilege of hosting that this year. And uh, actually, let's just pause for a second. Athena and the Global Missions team did a fantastic job of hosting this, along with 38 volunteers from our church. Can we just thank them for their work on that? Thank you so much. I know it was a great success that people are even still talking about now uh, a week later. Well, today we're going to jump back into our series on Moses now. And you've been with us for the past five weeks. This is the sixth episode of this series now. We've been following Moses and the children of Israel through the exodus, through the, the freeing from slavery of the Israelites from Egypt. And we've watched them journey through the desert. And today they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they are given the Ten Commandments. These laws, these rules that would govern the relationship with God as the chosen people. Now most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments. I think that's a common phrase or a common thing we're familiar with. And we're also probably equally familiar with the idea that there are rules all around us in the world. For example, we all know and are familiar also with the rules of the road. For example, if you were driving down the road and you encountered a red light, I think we all know the rule. What's the rule? You stop. Yeah, it's no trick question, right? You see a red light and you stop and you wait till it's green before you go again. But what if you encountered that red light at a relatively minor intersection at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning and there's no traffic around and you've waited a solid 90 seconds? What's the rule? Yeah. The rule is you waited too long. I knew somebody. I thought it might be Colin because he drives a Mustang and likes to go fed. But I, I knew somebody would to say that well, maybe there's a different rule that applies in that situation. You know, I, you know the, the rule is still what the rule is. But sometimes we, yep, sometimes it gives a little more relative in some people's minds. We also have these social rules that exist, the social norms that exist in society around us. One that we're going to run into, all of us are going to run into in the near future here when we start going to the malls to do Christmas shopping is we're going to be walking towards the mall entrance and we're going to know there's somebody behind us and we're going to get to the door and now we have that moment of choice. Do I open the door and just walk in or do I stop and, and hold the door for the person who goes? We've all experienced this. Right? Yeah, it's a social norm. The social rule is, especially, especially if you're a chivalrous man, you will stop and open the door and allow people to go. But here's, here's the thing that has baffled experts for decades is how many steps behind you is a step too far to the point where, where you just don't hold the door anymore. Is it, is it one step, two step, three step, four? I hold the door for you no more? How like, How is that, that going to work out? And all of us have different rules as to how that's going to happen. Rules are all around us in the world. And many of us will actually see that rules are the centerpiece of religion. Because every religion has rules and has a rule giver. Whether it be the three jewels of Taoism, the four noble truths of Buddhism, the five pillars of Islam, or whatever it may be, every religion has rules and a rule giver. And these rules are quite often what people rebel against. These rules are quite often what is the basis for causing people to walk away from of faith. Because you got to follow the rules, right? you got to follow the rules, but there's something within us that wants to make our own rules. And so when we talk about this, about the relationship between rules and religion, I, I think to some degree we can boil it down to the question of this. How do my behaviors line up with what I've been told God expects of me? How do my behaviors line up with what God expects of me, and how does that all relate to my relationship with God and with other people? And so we're going to have a look at this as we get into Exodus chapter 19 today, but before we open our text to that section, you can feel free to find it now if you want to. It's page 59 of your pew Bibles if you want to use that. But before we get right into the text, I think there's an important principle for us to understand first, and it's this. It's that rules always assume some form of relationship. And we know this to be true. If you are accountable to a set of rules, it's because there's some form of relationship that you exist within. If you know some rules exist, but you don't feel any accountability to them, it's because there is no relationship. But if you feel the burden of those rules, it's because you are in some form of relationship. Now, relationship takes different, there's different models of relationship, there's different ways that these rules exist in different contexts of a relationship. And I want, I'll, I'll give you three models, for example. First of all, there's the family model. Now, in the family model, you are born into the family, and once you are a part of the family, mom and dad start making rules, right? And, and rules do not bring you into that relationship. You're born into that relationship. But as part of the family, you're expected to follow the rules. One example we're probably experiencing in many homes right now is that many houses right now have an abundance of candy, whether because the kids went out and collected it last week or because you just bought it at Costco. And the kids, they want to freely partake of the four fall food groups, the four food groups, right, the chocolate suckers, chips, and Skittles. They want to partake of those freely at will, but mom and dad have rules, Right? There's rules about the candy. Rule number one, you got to pay the dad tax. 25% dad tax, right off the top. Right? Rule number two, don't tell mom about the dad tax, because then dad hears about blood pressure and th- things like that. <laughs> but, but more seriously, there, there's rules like you can only have a few at one time, and you can't have them before dinner and not before bed. These rules exist, and and rules within the family model, they don't exist to bring you into a relationship, they don't make you part of the family, but you're expected to follow them because you're in the family. second model that exists is this club model. We're probably familiar with this one as well. This is where you enter into a relationship by agreeing to a certain set of rules. Imagine if you had joined a, a gym membership, for example. They give you a contract to read over that includes the rules the rules that members of the club are supposed to follow. And you read that, and you sign the contract. And by signing the contract, you are now in the club. As long as you continue to follow the rules, you continue to be in the club. If you break the rules, you're at the club. It's conditional. In this model, rules do establish the relationship. And rules also determine if the relationship will continue based upon your adherence to the rules. The family model, the club model. There's one more third one, a little bit more obscure, but I think we're all, not all, but many of us anyways will be familiar with this one. It's called the homeowners association model. <laughs> it's another type of relationship that some of us have, have had the pleasure, or not so much, of being a part of. In this model of relationship, you buy a home or a condo, and by the nature of ownership, you are now in relationship with other owners in the area. And you want to follow the rules because you want to be a good homeowner. You want to be a good neighbor. But you're not quite sure what the rules are. <laughs> and you're not quite sure where you stand in relationship to others. The only way you can really find out is by going on Facebook <laughs> and seeing the comments that people post. And on Facebook comments is where you'll learn what you or your dog did wrong. And in this model, in this model the rules are a little more fluid. They're typically determined by Facebook Cairns who decide what the rules are for that particular month. And they can't remove you, but they can sure make you feel like you wished you lived somewhere else. Some of us perhaps have been part of condo associations that are similar to that. Now, it's important for us to understand this as we look at what happens at Mount Sinai. Because the principle is true in that situation as well. Rules assume some form of relationship. And so as we turn... Now, to Exodus chapter 19, Uh, again, uh, page 59 in your pew bibles are following along there. We come to a section of scripture where God has been leading and protecting and providing for Israel for three months. And they finally arrive at the mountain of God, where God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush and had told him to bring the people back to this place to worship them. And as they get back, almost immediately, Moses heads back up the mountain to meet with God, for the second time in his life. And we begin reading in verse three, where it says this Then Moses went up the mountain to the Lord, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to say to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, Then, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. In these three, four verses, we kind of get a really brief summary of God's summary of the story so far. But did you notice what he said near the beginning? He didn't say, I brought you out of Egypt to bring you to this mountain. He says, I have brought you to myself. You see, part of the purpose of the Exodus was, part of, part of the setting them free from slavery and from bondage was so that these people, these Israelites, could personally know a relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord their God, who had guided them, who had protected them. And he, as, he had, as he says, he carried you on wings of eagles. You see, up until now, they only knew God through the stories that they had heard, and through the stories that perhaps they had shared with their children about Father Abraham. How God had promised many generations ago, many, many generations ago, that Abraham would be made into a great nation. And Abraham held faithful to that promise, but question when, because he didn't have an heir until he was 100 years old. And then his son Isaac was born, and, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons would, would form the 12 tribes of Israel. But those sons hated one of their brothers, Joseph, who they sold into slavery in Egypt. But by the power of the presence of God, with Joseph, he went from the pit of prison to the palace and became the prime minister. So that when a famine came across the land, Joseph was in power and could move his family to Egypt to survive the famine. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 1, where we started our series. Remember, Exodus chapter 1, it talked about how Joseph and his brothers moved to Egypt, but then his brothers died, but the people multiplied. And they multiplied so much so they became a threat to the king of Egypt, who could have cast them off, who, who could have killed them, but instead enslaved them, enslaved them for 400 years. Until God called a man named Moses, who came to be the instrument of redemption, who would lead the people out of Egypt, into the desert, across the Red Sea, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And as they, as they listen to these words of God, as they understand the nature of this relationship that they had only heard about through stories to this point, they're beginning to see we're a part of the story. They're starting to realize we are part of that covenant promise and this comes through in this passage we just read when we look at the way that God speaks because he he speaks in these relational terms with Israel he says i carried you i brought you to myself obey me keep my covenant and you will be my treasured possession so we get a sense from this opening introduction that god summarizes the story that the relationship did not necessarily need to be established by the rules it only needed to be confirmed them. So Moses heads down the mountain he tells the elders and the people who wholeheartedly agree, Moses yes, we are all in. We will always trust God. We will always remain faithful to him. And so Moses reports back to God the people's response and God says very well, tell them to prepare themselves because I will appear to them all and I will speak to you in their presence for all to hear. And then they will know They will know themselves, they will know without a shadow of a doubt that I am the Lord their God, and that you, Moses, are my servant. And so for the next three days, they they wash their clothes, and they wash their bodies, and they do nothing that would make them ritually unclean, and they they form a perimeter around the base of the mountain so that nobody would get too close or run up the mountain and, and do something crazy like that. And when they're all ready, the next morning comes, and the people assemble at the foot of the mountain, at the base of the mountain, and God descends and meets with them in verse 16. Where it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and this thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out to the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. They had experienced some pretty amazing stuff this past three months, but nothing like this. This was an assault upon the senses. They could see the thick clouds, the the lightning and the fire upon the mountain. They could hear the thunder roaring through the hills and the blasts of a trumpet. They could feel the mountains, their whole selves quaking. They could taste and smell the smoke that was coming from the fire. Just imagine the scene as this is taking place. The power, the magnificence, just the awesomeness that you experience with your whole self. And they were terrified. And as they experienced all this, they listened to God speak to them through Moses. And the words that he speaks are the rules of the relationship. The Ten Commandments. The oldest, most well-known set of rules. Received through direct speech from God and linked to the covenant promise. Now it's often thought that, that Moses and God perhaps had this conversation in private up on a mountain. And maybe that's because of the you know, the Ten Commandments movie from back in the 60s where it's, you know, it's God and, God and Moses and, and just having a conversation and then Moses comes down and says, here's, here's what God said. When we look at this verse from going through chapter 20 up to verse 18 as well, it gives the sense and it, it, it's widely agreed that these words, yes, other words were given, other commandments were given, but these ones were unique. And that these ones were direct speech from the Word of God, linked to the covenant, written on the tablets, placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and that the people of Israel assembled that day all heard firsthand what these rules are. As we look at how God begins to deliver them, we see a major clue of the relationship model that he's using. You see, when God begins to deliver these commandments, he does not start with a command. He actually starts with a statement. A statement that emphasizes relationship. As we turn to verse uh, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, it says, And the Lord said to the people, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am your God. Well, that would make us your people then, God. And when did that happen? It happened when I saw your bondage. It happened when I heard your cry for help, and I delivered you by my hand. I am the Lord your God who loves you, who saved you, who cares for you, who brought you into relationship with me. And before I give you the rules, I I need this to be established. I need you to know. I need you to know that you are mine and I am yours. I need to establish that we are in relationship. Because I don't want you to just follow the rules because I told you to. I want you to follow the rules because I have proved myself faithful to you. I don't want you to just follow the rules because of some sense of obligation. I want you to do it out of love and gratitude. I I don't want you just to follow the rules because you fear me. I want you to ultimately do it because you trust me. Because you trust me. Because sometimes my rules won't make sense, and yet it's what's best for you. And I need you to trust me, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when the world and the nations around you do otherwise, I need you to trust me. Don't follow me because I told you to, or because you're obligated to, or because you fear me. Do it because you love me, because you trust me. And then, he proceeds to give them the Ten Commandments. These phrases that would guide their relationship as the people of God. Now, most people, as we mentioned, are familiar with the existence of the Ten Commandments. Quite a few people can only name about half of them. I tested the worship team backstage before service. Collectively, they got them all, (laughs) so it's good news. And I haven't got time to unpack all 10 of them. I think it's it's more of a series into itself, perhaps, that we'll tackle in the future here. But for today, I, I think there's some important understandings of how these are organized that are beneficial for us. You see, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we see that, first of all, the first four deal with a people's relationship to God. You shall have... No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idols. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Relating to the people's relationship with God. The second set, the second six commandments deal with living at peace with others in community as well. On your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's items and things. And at Mount Sinai, the people receive these and they, they agree to these rules. We will always follow them. We'll always obey them. We'll always trust you, God. Those of you who have been around church or familiar with the Bible, how long did that last? <laughs> Six months? A year? No, yeah, about four weeks. <laughs> about four weeks. Because Moses goes up the mountain talking with God and he takes too long from their perspective and Israel loses faith in these things that they've just heard and this experience they've just had and and they lose faith and they create an idol They, they form something in a golden calf into a God that they worship right there at the foot of the mountain and if you follow the rest of the Israel story from generations to come and for centuries to come you see a pattern emerge the same pattern where they agree that we will follow the rules, but then they break the rules. And then God sends his prophets to warn them and say, guys, come back. Come back and, and, and start getting back into proper relationship with me. And, and when they don't, he disciplines them. And then they eventually return to covenant again, and then it repeats, and it repeats, and it repeats. And, and, and in, this, in this equation, the prophets are, the, are, are kind of the Old Testament equivalent of God being that loving parent who's counting to three. One, two, two and a half, three. And and then they get put in timeout. Sometimes they're in timeout in Babylon for 70 years. But what does he never do? God never gives up on them. Why? Because he's not operating by the club model of rules. This isn't the club model. This is the family model of rules. You see, God's rules are a confirmation of, not a condition, of the relationship with him. How have you viewed these in the past? What about the other commands and the teachings we find in Scripture? How have have you viewed those? Because however you view them, whichever model relationship model you view them with will have a big impact on how you understand your relationship with God. Some of us were taught the club model that rules establish a relationship and the basis of staying in the relationship, the basis of your ability to stay within the church is based upon the club model, upon following the rules. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the rules? Some of you perhaps grew up in a church where they taught you the family model. But your experience was more like the club model. You were told you were born into the family, but based upon your behavior, people will determine if you're still allowed to continue in the family or if they're going to cancel you from the family. Or some people have grown up in the church and they told that there was a family model, you're born into it, but they experience more of the HOA model. Where based upon your behavior, people may not be able to kick you out, but they can certainly make you feel unwelcome. But when we consider which model God operates by there, as well as the model that Jesus operates by, what did he say? What did he demonstrate? What did Jesus reveal to the world about this? Well, I think one account that's helpful for us to look at today is is a conversation that Jesus had with a young rich ruler, found in Mark chapter 10. And we'll go through this quickly today, but if you want to study this in more detail, this is one of the passages that are beyond the message life groups is going to be digging into a little bit. And if you're part of one of those groups, you can anticipate looking more into Mark chapter 10. If if you want to do more beyond the message learning, or if you want to join one of those groups, just go to westmeadows.org and you'll find a link where you can join one of them. But in this story in Mark chapter 10, a man comes right up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him what he's been taught. What what model, what rules have you been taught? He says, you know the Ten Commandments probably, and you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, you should not give false testimony, don't defraud anybody, honor your father and your mother. Recognize which set of rules those commandments come from. Notice they all come from the set, the second set, relating to one another. How do we earn favor? How we earn merit and good standing amongst a relationship with other people is, is the ones that Jesus lists. And the man can easily respond to those Teacher, I have kept all of those since I was a young child. Now, Jesus recognizes the earnestness of this man's heart, the true desire of his, of his question, and, and the genuineness, sincereness of his desire to have something that he currently doesn't feel like he's in relationship with. He's asking the question, how can I have eternal life? How can I spend eternity with God? It's a question about his relationship with God, not his relationship with others. And Jesus sees the earnestness of this question. And so he pushes a little more into the heart of the matter. He says, there's one thing you're missing. It's a big thing. He says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow And the man's face was downcast, and he went away with his heart just broken, very sad, because he had great wealth, and he just couldn't part with it. Now at first glance, when we look at this passage, Jesus may be seen as saying, you're good, but you're just not good enough. Go do more good, and then you're in. We could understand Jesus' words from that perspective but this is where the context of relationship matters because that would be true if we were in the context of a club model where the relationship is established by the rules. You earn your way in. But I think we look at the text, that was the perspective the man was approaching the question by. But Jesus called him to a different model because this is where the man fell short. It wasn't a question of if the man was good enough. It wasn't a question about his relationship with others. Where he fell short was in the first set of commandments. His relationship with God. In particular, the ones that say, you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no idols in your life. And for this man who came to Jesus, his money, his status, his power were the gods and the idols that existed in his life. And he left without the relationship he sought. Because while it was available to him, he could not make God the first love in his heart. Throughout the way that Jesus taught an encounter with people, we see that he was the one who came. And the, if you remember in that passage in, in, in Mark 10, he's also saying, do this, make God first in your heart, and then come follow me. Understand the nature of the relationship, and then come follow me. And see, Jesus is the one who made the way for that relationship to be open for all. For all of us to follow the family model in relationship with God. In John 1.12, he said, To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For the Israelites, who did not earn their way into relationship but rather God entered into their world and made a way for that relationship. They may have been in bondage to Egypt, but we ourselves today find ourselves in bondage as slaves to sin. They may have cried out for help when God sent Moses to be the agent of, of redemption, but in our helpless state, when we cry out, we find that God has sent Jesus to be our Redeemer. And as God invited Israel to come into relationship and trust him, he says to us through Jesus, trust me. And to all who trust in him, to all who will believe in his name, we'll be set free. We'll become a child in the family of God. So what's the purpose of the rules then? If we're just born into it, if we, if we can just believe in Jesus, be born into it, what is the purpose of the rules then? What's the purpose of the commands and the teachings? What we call the family model? The rule is not the way that we establish relationship. Rather, they're the way that we confirm the relationship. And that's what Jesus was speaking about himself in John 14, 15, when he said, if you love me, if you believe in me, if you understand what I've done for you, if we're in that relationship, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. Even when they're contrary to what you want. Even when they're different than the world around you. Even when the nations around you say it doesn't matter, you can do what you want, you can make your own rules. If you love me, not other gods, not other idols, not other priorities, not yourself. If you love me, then you will obey my commands. Remember the first principle we talked about? Rules always assume a form of relationship. And if you feel no burden or no responsibility or no, no need to follow these rules that God sets forward, and you know, whether it be the Ten Commandments or the teachings of Jesus, then it makes sense to ask yourself, where is my relationship with God at? If I don't feel a burden to abide by these rules, what is the state of my relationship? Do I have a relationship with God? If you do, but you still struggle with this burden, the lack of a, of, of a desire to follow, then it's helpful to ask yourself, what is standing in the way? Like the young rich ruler, what, what idol, what else may have first place in my life that, that is, is governing my relationships, even my relationship with God? Maybe for some people it is money. For others it might be social pressure. Well if I don't do that or if I say no to that if I if I separate myself and be a set apart people from the rest of the world I'll feel that social pressure. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction that you just don't want to let go of even though you know God's rules are contrary to it. Maybe it's personal goals that you've established for yourself you're like well if I if I follow God I can't follow myself I can't be my own god essentially. And there are people who have a relationship with God, but they wrestle with this burden, this need to follow the rules, because there's something standing in the way. And I would suggest you to examine if that is a violation of the first or the second covenant, or a commandment that needs to be resolved within yourself. But there are those also who don't have a relationship with God. To those who don't... I invite you to recall that to all those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, He gave the right to become children of God. And that is a reality that is open and available to all people. That when we place our hope, our trust, and our faith in Jesus Christ, when we place our lives in His hands instead of our own, when we trust in His work upon the cross, we become children of God. And here's the cool thing about family families forever. You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. Remember, the rules are a confirmation, not a condition of that relationship that we have with him. And as I talk about the means of what we believe in when we believe, make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we talk about the things that we reflect and we celebrate and remember when we come to the communion table. Because the things that we focus upon at the communion table are things that we believe that make us family. The sacrifice that Jesus made in our place upon the cross where he paid the price for our sins a, a price that we could never pay on our own a sacrifice that we did not deserve but out of love and out of desire to have us in the family God delivered us from our sin through Jesus Christ And the elements you received when you came in today, if you didn't receive the the cup when you came in, you can just put your hand up in a moment here and the ushers will bring one to you. But in there we have the bread, which is symbolic of the body of Christ, in which he lived and suffered and offered up in our place and died upon the cross. Also we have the blood, his blood which was shed, his life which he gave That in the giving of his life, when we place our trust in him, we would receive life. And so as we're able to come together around this table to partake, we do so with an opportunity. Number one, an opportunity to affirm that we believe that. That we believe that that's what brings us into relationship. And that's how we can live according to God's will in the context of that relationship by following and obeying him. And as we contemplate that, others will find that we have had moments, even this past Days, weeks, or months where we have gone wayward. We have broken God's will and his rules for our lives. And as we come to this table, it's awful as an opportunity to confess that. And as we take a moment of reflection now, to prepare our hearts and to contemplate the nature of our relationship with God, as we come to the table to reflect upon the means by which we have a relationship with God, consider that, that we can affirm that belief here at this table. We can confess our waywardness as we come to this table. And it gives us the ability to reset our commitment to obey Him out of love.